Hello. Hello. Hello, and welcome to Grace Online. We're really excited for you to be able to receive an encouraging word from Scripture today. Because we know that God is already here, and He is ready to be with you. And let's get ready to hear today's message. I want to invite you to open up your Bibles to the book of Revelation, chapter 2. Chapter 2, verse 12. You can use your pew Bible, the Bible you brought with you. Or if you have a phone or a tablet, just go to gracefamily.info. It'll take you right to our scripture. And as you're finding Revelation chapter 2, I'd like to play a game with you today. A game of true or false. I'm going to make a couple of statements. And I'd like you to jot down on paper if you'd like. Or mentally in your head, just keep track. Whether you think each statement is true or false. Ready? One year of our lives is equivalent to seven years of a dog's life. True or false? The French dictator Napoleon was a short man. True or false? Humans only use 10% of their brains. True or false? If you swallow chewing gum, it will stay in your body for seven years. True or false? Cracking your knuckles will give you arthritis. True or false? All of these statements are false. All of them. Most people think you can multiply by seven to get your dog's age, but experts tell us this is simply not true. It's just a made-up number that's been circulating, in fact, since the 13th century. More than likely, imagine this, due to some monks at Westminster Abbey. And surprise, surprise, Napoleon was not of, of diminutive height, In fact, there's good reason to believe Napoleon was actually a bit taller than the average Frenchman of his day. As for the other statements about using only 10% of our brains or swallowing chewing gum and it remaining in in the human body for seven years or cracking one's knuckles leading to arthritis, they also are all false. Don't feel too bad if you believed any of them. These so-called facts still show up in the press today and even in some academic publications. According to the British Medical Journal, even doctors endorse many of these so-called facts that are just plain untrue. Why? Why do we harbor so easily false beliefs? Well, psychologists have shown us that we all tend to take mental shortcuts, accepting what we're given more often than not at face value and relying on what others tell us in order to quickly process and understand all that's happening around us. We tend to do this especially when we perceive that we don't have time, we don't have the energy to stop and carefully examine and reflect on what's really going on, what's actually true. But not surprisingly, these shortcuts, more often than not, steer us in the wrong direction. They can get us into trouble, or worse, can contribute to the spread of error and falsehoods. As we return to the book of Revelation, to Jesus' letters to the seven churches, We're going to learn today that truth matters, that the truth of the gospel must be known, must be shared, and must be contended for. Together, we're going to discover the truth of the gospel is not something that can be shaped according to the life we're already living. No, truth be told, the truth that is Jesus Christ seeks to shape us to radically transform the existence we settle for into the kind of life we were always meant to live. If you have those Bibles open, or if not, just keep your eyes on the screen. Let's read from Revelation chapter 2, verses 12 through 17. It reads, To the angel, to the church in Pergamum, write, These are the words of him who has the sharp, double-edged sword. I know where you live, where Satan has his throne, yet you remain true to my name. 
You did not renounce your faith in me, not even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness who was put to death in your city where Satan lives. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. There are some of you who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin so that they ate food, sacrificed to idols, and committed sexual immorality. Likewise, you also have those who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Repent, therefore, otherwise I will soon come to you and fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, I will give some of the hidden manna. I will also give that person a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to the one who receives it. And this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. As you heard, Jesus addresses this letter to a community of his followers living in the city of Pergamum. Situated some 16 miles from the Aegean Sea, Pergamum was located on the northern side of a broad valley of the Caius River. The city was actually built on a lofty, isolated rock around a citadel hill roughly 1,000 feet above the plains. In fact, many of the city's buildings were built into the side of that hill. Pergamum was known as a hub of political and religious activity going all the way back to the 3rd century B.C., It was actually an important military center at that time for the Attilid kingdom. Pergamum became, in fact, one of the first cities to welcome the emerging Roman Empire as an ally. In 133 BC, when King Attalus III died without any heirs, he had bequeathed Pergamum to Rome. And this resulted in the creation of the province of Asia by the Roman Empire. Much later in 29 BC, after receiving permission from the Senate, Pergamum became the first city in the empire to build a temple to a living emperor, Augustus. Now, there were, in fact, lots of temples and altars to be found in Pergamum, including worship sites dedicated to Dionysus, Athena, Asclepius, and this gigantic Ephesus found at the summit of its Acropolis. Towering more than 800 feet high stood a massive colonnaded court in the shape of a horseshoe, a soaring altar that was in honor of the god of the Greco-Roman gods, Zeus. When Jesus speaks, as you heard, of this place being where Satan has his throne, some believe he's referring to this colossal monument that casts such a large shadow over the city. But others perceive Jesus to be alluding to something much more sinister. You see, the symbol of Pergamum was actually the sword, Because Pergamum was one of the few cities to which Rome had given the right to inflict capital punishment. And so it served as the judgment seat of the empire in the east. So rival forms of worship in Pergamum, including the civil religion of the cult of the emperor, were wedded to dictatorial power, the dictatorial power of the sword, the right to execute anyone at will. And this made for a dangerous and lethal environment for a community of Jesus followers. Now, we know very little about the church in Pergamum. It's not mentioned anywhere else in the Bible. We have no idea how this church got planted, how big this community became, who the leader of this congregation was. All we know is what Jesus outlines in this letter. And based upon what Jesus describes about the church in Pergamum, like many other churches in Asia Minor, it was facing regular persecution. Things had gotten so bad for the church in Pergamum, they had actually lost one of their own, as we heard. Someone named Antipas, In fact, the only named martyr in the whole book of Revelation, by the way. Jesus pauses, if you notice, to praise Antipas, speaking of him in the same way he spoke of John at the start of this revelation. He speaks of Antipas as his faithful witness. 
And Jesus goes on to say, despite this tragic loss, he commends the Christians in Pergamum for holding fast to his name, for staying strong in resisting the external pressure to deny Christ. And yet at the same time, all was not well for the church at Pergamum. While Jesus affirms the community for holding fast, even as the threat of the sword of Rome remained to be pulled from its shield, Jesus also expresses grave concern about an internal danger within the church because of the teaching of someone called the Nicolaitans. And you might remember, if you've been with us before, that this group, the Nicolaitans, was vaguely referred to back in Christ's first letter to the church in Ephesus. Now, in this letter to the church in Pergamum, we get a little bit more information about the Nicolaitans as their teaching and practices are likened to someone named Balaam. And if you're not familiar with this, in pointing to Balaam, Jesus is in fact referencing a person who became a part of the story of Israel's long exodus from Egypt through the wilderness into the promised land. And if you don't remember, here's a quick recap of Balaam's story as recorded in Numbers chapters 22 to 25 and also chapter 31. So here it is in the story. The Israelites are continuing to travel through the wilderness and they're approaching the plains of a place called Moab. And the king of Moab, Balak, seeing the horde of Israelites approaching on the horizon, is struck with great fear. Because Balak has heard of how the Israelites have previously defeated the Egyptians, and much more recently the Amorites. Figuring the best defense is a good offense, the Moabite king recruits a highly regarded prophet for hire named Balaam. And Balaam is contracted to curse the encampment of Israel. And if he successfully ruins them, Balak, Balak, King Balak promises to give Balaam a great reward. Now, if you're familiar at all, if it's starting to come back to you, what happens in this story next is, a, is both comical and fascinating at the same time. What happens is every time Balaam opens his mouth to curse Israel, the Lord restrains what Balaam purposes to say and instead moves Balaam to pronounce blessings over Israel. Three times this happens. And ironically, if you go back into Numbers, chapters 22 and 25, ironically, the three oracles uttered by Balaam contain some of the most beautiful prophecies in all of Scripture concerning the blessed future of Israel and the eventual arrival of the Messiah, the Christ. Now, if you do know this full story, the fact that Balaam ended up becoming God's mouthpiece, you know it did not, however, result in Balaam's heart turning towards the Lord. Being restrained and unable to directly harm the people of Israel, Balaam comes up with a different plan for bringing them down. Balaam advises the Moabite king Balak to adopt a more indirect form of attack, to seduce Israel with wine, women, and song, and thus lead them into both physical and spiritual adultery. Balaam's cunning, work, cunning plot works in leading Israel away from worshiping the one true God, Yahweh, and into idolatry, the worship of the gods of Moab. So if we bring this back around, this story in the background, to Jesus' admonition against the church in Pergamum, what exactly is happening? Well, much like Balaam did to the Israelites, the Nicolaitans are luring the Christians in Pergamum to indulge rather than to resist the offerings of the Roman Empire. Specifically, you heard Jesus rebukes the church for eating food sacrificed to idols and for committing sexual immorality. Now let's work backwards in terms of this indictment. Let's start with the charge of sexual immorality. The charge of sexual immorality, while it possibly could be literal, 
the use of this particular Greek word throughout the book of Revelation is more metaphorical. Everywhere else it's metaphorical. So that means it probably is here too. And it's referring to spiritual apostasy. In fact, elsewhere in scripture, the biblical writers often employ sexual imagery to describe unfaithfulness to God, spiritual adultery. In the Old Testament, you might remember, the idolatry of Israel is frequently condemned through metaphors of prostitution and sexual immorality. So that is more than likely what's going on here. The primary point of contention is idolatry rather than sexual sin. Paying homage and giving allegiance to that which belongs solely to the Lord and instead giving it to a false god. And that this is Jesus' ultimate concern is reinforced by him calling out the Pergamon Christian's practice of eating food sacrificed to idols. What does this look like? Well, back in the day, various animals were being ritually sacrificed and dedicated to other gods. The meat from those sacrifices, the unused meat, was then sold in open markets and then served at either public feasts or private gatherings. And such meals were typically held in honor of the God to whom the animal had been sacrificed. It was in fact believed that that God was the particular guest, the honored guest at the meal. Now in both Jewish and Greco-Roman understanding, eating a meal at someone's table, breaking bread with them, expressed a bond of loyalty, a devotion not only to the person, but to whatever or whoever they were celebrating. So the key issue here is participation in these meals rather than eating the meat from the sacrifices. I'm getting really dense on you, but you might remember that the Apostle Paul dealt with this concern, eating meat sacrificed to idols. He dealt with this concern in his first letter to the church in Corinth. Paul taught, if you don't remember, that it was permissible to eat meat that came from animals sacrificed to idols, that the meat itself was harmless. It was harmless for a person whose faith was firmly in Jesus Christ. But Paul's one caveat, however, was that a follower of Jesus ought not to eat such meat if doing so was going to create confusion and possibly harm the faith of someone less mature, of those who were new to following Jesus, of those who maybe were struggling in their belief in Christ. Paul, in this one instance, gives us a helpful guide for all followers of Jesus, not just in terms of eating meat, sacrifice to idols. Paul gives us this idea, this standard, that if we are strong in our faith in Christ, then we don't have to live in fear and avoidance when it comes to partaking of the things of this world that are apart from Jesus. Out of our freedom in Christ, much is permissible. But at the same time, we must be discerning. We must be careful. We must be sensitive to what rivals or weakens the practice of our faith as well as what harms or threatens the emerging faith of others in following Christ. To put this all together, sometimes while we have freedom in Christ, it is better if we abstain, especially if our participation in any way leans towards giving our devotion and allegiance to anything or anyone other than Jesus. For the church in Pergamum that was facing persecution for their faith in Christ, any active participation, so think about this, the church is under fire externally. Therefore, any active participation by Christians in temple feasts, feasts meant to honor pagan deities, any active participation by Christians in regular displays of patriotism, giving glory to the emperor, the empire of Rome, it was not only sending the wrong message, it was leading the church away from following the truth of Jesus and instead centering their lives around a lie. It's important to understand the approach of the Nicolaitans 
like that of Balaam, was not one of explicit attack upon anyone's faith in Christ. It wasn't an explicit direct attack. It was the seduction of teaching that there was no harm, but actually more benefit in having a more accommodating approach to the ways of the Roman Empire while following Jesus. The temptation that the Christians in Pergamum succumbed to was the allure of the art of the compromise. The argument being made that conforming to the social, economic, and political practices of the Roman Empire was just being a good neighbor, was just proving oneself to be an upstanding citizen. If Christians didn't just want to survive, not only to stop being harassed, but if they actually wanted to make any inroads in sharing their faith in leading others to Christ, then they needed, when in Rome, to do what the Romans do. After all, you got to give a little to get a little. To be in the room where it happens, you have to be willing to play by the rules of the game. This isn't just good strategic policy to gain power. It's how things work in this world. And it doesn't have to change what we believe about Jesus. And there are many followers of Jesus, or I would even just say Christians, who make the same argument to this day. It doesn't have to change what we believe about Jesus if we play ball. But my friends, what we believe about Jesus isn't really what matters. What we believe about Jesus isn't really what matters. It's following Jesus. It's living for Christ. It's living like Jesus that is the witness to our faith, to where our ultimate loyalty resides. And we can't, we won't be following the truth of Jesus if we are busy accommodating the lies of false gods. Now, the snare of idolatry looks different in our day than it did back in the days of the church at Pergamum. The false gods we worship aren't visibly cast into busts or figurines or enormous temples. Our gods, while less conspicuous, our idols, still bear the same ideology, though, of the false gods of our ancestors. They're constructed around the same values of safety and security, comfort and convenience, and power and control. Our modern-day idols are things like materialism, consumerism, nationalism, racism, sexism, ageism, individualism, and so on. Again, the issue here is not one of participation. It's not about not being a part of this world in which we live. The answer here is not to withdraw from society. God did not remain apart from us but came into this world in the person of Jesus Christ. And Jesus calls us in following him not to withdraw from the world, but to go and share the gospel to the very ends of the earth. We all have to work in the marketplace. We all have to take part in the political process. We all have to engage our neighbors. The key is we are called to be in this world, but no longer of this world. As children of the kingdom of God, as witnesses to the inbreaking even now of the reign of the way, the truth, the life, the love of Jesus Christ, the danger is when our participation becomes our allegiance. When we choose to bow down and give ultimate loyalty to what is not of the Lord instead of remaining singularly devoted to the way of Christ. As we come to believe whatever we have is ours, our possessions, 
rather than gifts we have been given by God for the stewardship of his purposes. When our defense and protection of what we have, what we want, what we can get, overrides Jesus' call about what we need, what we are to give, what we are to share. When that happens, we are bowing down before the twin tower false gods of materialism and consumerism. When our allegiance to the flag and to the agenda of this country, right or wrong, and the enthusiasm and spirit of our patriotism, all good things, but when they are stronger than our commitment to the great commandment, to love God as we love our neighbor and as we love ourselves, to the great commission, to go and share the gospel, when those things are greater than the great commandment and great commission, civil religion, nationalism has become our idol. As we cling to deep-rooted prejudices, and refuse to acknowledge the scars of our past, nationally, locally, personally, as we refuse to acknowledge the scars of our past and refuse to acknowledge the still unresolved and perpetuating wounds of the present, born of discrimination due to the color of one's skin, one's ethnicity, one's gender, one's sexual orientation or age, and yet continue to blindly or consciously benefit from such inequalities, Our devotion to the kingdom of God has been compromised by our devotion to the status quo of self. Let it be said one more time. The answer to the seduction of idolatry is not to build a wall around ourselves or create some sort of Christian bubble and put up a sign that says, no trespassing. Because that kind of separation, which is very popular these days in the church, We'll just create our own inclusive Christian community and shut out all the bad people out there or the bad things that are out there. That only leads to another form of idolatry. That of operating out of an air of false superiority, of presumptive judgmentalism, of arrogant pride in ourselves rather than bearing the compassion and forgiveness of Jesus. The problem, as I've said to you again and again and again, and we need to start using this language, it's not us versus them. The problem is not out there. We're all in this together, and the problem is in here, and in here. And we all share the problem, and we also all share the solution. And the solution is meant to be shared, not for us to hoard to ourselves. You know, the solution, the remedy for avoiding compromise or conformity, for settling for less than we can be, for less than we are called to be, for for not making Jesus less than he is. Jesus gives us that solution in the description that he gives of himself at the start of this letter. As the way he describes himself, he says he is the one who has the sharp, double-edged sword. And that image of Jesus is the one who has the sharp, double-edged sword, it's an image that goes back to chapter 1 in Revelation. It's an image that Jesus first gave to John, the transcriber of this vision at the beginning. And later in this letter to the church at Pergamum, Jesus fills out that that picture when he presents himself as having this sharp double-edged sword coming out of his mouth. It's this really disturbing picture, right? And he gave it first to John. And it's a picture, and I told you before, that goes all the way back to the prophet Isaiah. It's mentioned in the letter to the Ephesians in our Bible, in the letter to the Hebrews. And it's a picture that represents the word of God. The sword represents the word of God, the all-encompassing truth, the authoritative wisdom, the very means by which God creates. God creates by speaking. And the word of God comes out of the mouth of Christ. The sword comes out of the mouth of Christ because Jesus is the word of God. 
Jesus is the creative force. Jesus is the law and the instruction. Jesus is the character and purpose of God made flesh. So when we sit here and we ask ourselves, how are we to engage a broken world without our broken but, but being mended selves falling victim to the seduction and allure of would-be gods. How do we do that? How are we to discern and recognize what is truth even as we are fed lies wrapped in religious language? Even as we are served temptations packaged with a Christian veneer? How are we to know what's true? How are we to not fall victim to would, false would-be gods, the answer is by daily and regularly submitting ourselves to the truth of the gospel. It's by daily being in our Bibles and in the Spirit. It's by praying. It's by studying. It's by worshiping. We don't do these things so we can pride ourselves on being better Christians, so we can say we've checked the box. We do these things because they orient us to the one who is true, to what is true. We're yielding to the sword that is the word of God, the character and will of Christ, the sword that is the word of God that pierces all our defenses, that pricks our conscience, that wounds our pride, that cuts away all the fat born of our ego and pretense, and that reveals and at the same time heals the errors of our humanity. Our thoughts and our words and our actions lived apart from Jesus. That's why Jesus here calls the church in Pergamum and calls all who follow him to repent. And that word, you've heard that word, it's a churchy word, repent. That Greek word that we translate as repentance is a word called metonia. And it means to think again. It means to change one's mind. And the crazy thing is, is that most Christians associate repentance as something that only needs to be done when we've done something wrong. You did something wrong, you need to repent. But biblically, repentance is presented as a daily repeated action Not just after we've done something wrong, but in order to prevent us from ending up in the wrong in the first place. If we are imperfect people, and we all are, if we are works in progress by the grace of God, then we constantly need to be reoriented. We constantly need to be recentered back to Christ. As broken people living in a broken world, yet still learning, not yet arriving, we're not there yet. In terms of the kingdom of God, apart from Jesus, we can easily be enslaved by false ideas. Because some lies, most lies, contain some truth. And we also, whether we want to admit it or not, not, all of us share in common that we're all inclined, we're all inclined to believe what we want to hear. We're predisposed to believe what we already want to hear. You put that together, that's a dangerous combination. That lies contain some truth and that on our own we are generally intended to believe what we're inclined to already want to hear. And that deadly combination means we can't always tell the difference between what's good and what's evil. What's right and what's wrong. What's true and what's a lie. Especially if what's evil, if what's wrong, if what's false is made to look very, very attractive. And hence, we need to regularly repent. We need to regularly think again. Or as the Apostle Paul puts it in his letter to the Romans chapter 12, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. The renewing of our minds. You see, in the end, the question this letter raises for us is simple but challenging. Who or what is shaping us? Who or what is molding us? Are we 
by the grace of God being renewed and grown into the mind of Christ, the character of Christ? Or are we letting our minds be taken captive by the values and priorities of something else, of someone else? Beloved, we need to wake up. We need to wake up and recognize how little we are allowing Jesus to form us and shape us if all we are doing is exercising a few table prayers and showing up for a weekly church service. If you've ever taken a piece of meat, a piece of chicken, if you want it to get some flavor, you've got to marinate it. The longer you marinate it, the more it's going to capture that flavor. What are you marinating in? Because whatever you're marinating in, that's what you smell like. That's what you taste like. If the rest of our time and energy, if we're just relying on a couple of table prayers, maybe a Bible study here and there, and we show up for church on Sunday, if we show up, if the rest of our time and energy is being devoted to everything else but Christ, then we are primarily being shaped by a rival of false gospel. You know, when you were in school, you had to do homework. You had to study. If all of a sudden a test came and you failed it, the next thing the teacher asked you was, did you study? You haven't been turning in your homework. When our faith is tested, when it push comes to shove of what we really believe, of who we really follow, if we're not doing our homework, if we're not studying, if we're not prepping, then we are going to fail the test. And we are going to be shaped by other things. And it's not about cramming or brain dumping. Some of us, that's how we studied in school, right? We'd night before the test, we'd do an all-nighter and we'd cram and we'd brain dump. The problem with that is you may have passed the test, but what happened after the test? I don't remember anything, whatever. Just brain dump. And for some of us, it's not about cramming and just, you know, immersing ourselves in a Bible study or coming to multiple worship services. It's not about the activity. It's about the posture. It's about the practice and application. How are we inviting Jesus on a regular basis into our thoughts, into our words, into our actions? Over and over again, the Bible commands us. It cautions us. We are what we eat. We become what we consume. Where our treasure is, there our heart will be also. Beloved, do we take that warning seriously? Do we take it seriously? Or is it possible we've even grown more careless, more suspect than the church in Pergamum ever was? You know, I think we're more careless. I talk to people all the time and I hear things that scare me the bejesus out of me. People who say, yeah... I just turn it off. I don't even listen anymore. I don't even think anymore. I just go about my day. I just kind of keep my head down and, you know, I just do what I do. We live in the information age, and that's a good thing and it's a bad thing because we live in an information age where any information or news we don't like, we can just deem as fake news. We can just write it off. In fact, we can actually curate the kind of news we want to see. Remember that thing I said that's our habit of we like to already, we're already predisposed to believe what we want to hear? So now we can just get the news that tells us what we already think. And by the way, if any of you are sitting here and think that the news that we practice and engage in now doesn't operate that way, you are crazy. The news makes its money. It gets you to click. It gets you to subscribe by telling you what you want to hear. It's not interested in telling you what's true. It's interested in telling you what you want to be true. Does that stop you from reading it? Does that stop you from, and again, how lazy we become. We're worse than the church in Pergamum because some of us, I see it all the time, forward links to articles that we haven't even read at first. 
Because the headline, yes, I agree with that headline. And you didn't even read what you sent to 50, to 100 people. And when someone responds and says, did you read this? Well, doesn't matter, it's true. What? We live in a world, this has just come out with the testimony against Facebook, if you've been paying any attention to that. We live in a world where algorithms are constructed to mediate the sort of content, true or not, that will catch our attention. And the reality of this, this world in which we live, is that so many of us have been worn down, worn out, that we absolutely say out loud, we don't know who or what to trust anymore. And that attitude can quickly cause us to slip into or just remain in a perpetual state of careless indifference. Do you live in a state of perpetual careless indifference? Have you turned your mind off because everybody's doing it? We're living in a world that's polarized and we're all just basically going, well, I guess that's just the way it's going to be and I'm just going to turn my mind off. How comfortable have we become? How comfortable are we becoming in practicing a faith in Christ that lacks any sort of reflection, that claims we have no time for discernment, that divorces following Jesus from having to think critically, from needing to be grounded in truth? It is morally irresponsible and it is leading us into idolatry when we turn our minds off when we refuse to reflect, when we refuse to think, when we refuse to wrestle. You know, the second of the Ten Commandments of our Creator's rules for life, the second of the Ten Commandments is the prohibition against idols, right? The Lord forbids us from making idols not because God has an image problem. The Lord forbids us from making idols because we're not adept enough to create a fair likeness of God. But even more than this, the reason why we're forbidden from casting God in any other image, I wonder if this has ever occurred to us, this thought, the reason why we're forbidden from casting God in any other image is because we, as humanity, we are the image that God has already created to reflect himself. Idolatry is laziness. Idolatry is saying, I'm going to let something else stand in the way of my responsibility to reflect the image of the God in whom I'm created. We are created in God's image to reflect and represent the Lord's character and purposes. And while this image has been marred by sin, human sin, thanks to Jesus Christ, the image of our humanity is being reshaped by forgiveness and grace. And the snare of idolatry, settling for less than we can be, and we're settling for less than we can be, for settling for less than we've been called to be. We're called to be so much more. We've been empowered to be so much more. And when we settle for less than we can be and settle for less than we're called to be, we're settling for less than who Jesus is, what the gospel is. And the thing is, it's not just causing danger to ourselves, it's harmful to our neighbor. Because that's the thing, as Christians, the question of who or what is shaping us, the question of who or what is molding us, it matters. Because we have been reflected, called to reflect Jesus truthfully and rightly. And we've been called to reflect Jesus truthfully and rightly, not just for ourselves, but so that others may see and know and receive Christ in their lives. This is, we were having this conversation in the Bible study beforehand. We are seeing generations walk away from the church. And they're walking away from the church. And we can point to the culture, we can point to the world, we can point to... They're walking away from the church Loving Jesus. They love Jesus, but they're walking away from the church because they don't see anything that looks like Jesus in us. 
They see a dichotomy between the Jesus, the character and purpose of Jesus is presented in the word and the way we represent Christ. That's not on the world, that's on us. When we bear false witness, we misrepresent who Jesus is and what the gospel is all about. And that's why Jesus warns the Christians at Pergamum, Pergamum, here at church, that his word is a double-edged sword. Jesus says, the sword of truth will one day become the sword of judgment, striking down all the lies, striking down all the deception, all the manipulation, and laying bare what is real, what matters, what lasts. Jesus will hold us responsible to that measure of truth we have known, to that measure of truth we have lived. Now, that doesn't have to make us afraid. Because Jesus' caution, Christ's caution here, is not about scaring us to study up and get smarter and wiser on our own. As always, in these letters, the warning of Jesus always comes with a promise, an invitation not to try to save ourselves, but to embrace the salvation he offers us. When Jesus speaks of giving hidden manna and a white stone with a new name on it to the one who is victorious... Jesus is not speaking in a future tense. Jesus is not talking about, well, if we accomplish something, then he'll give us these things. Jesus is reinforcing what he's already done for us. We already are victorious, church. It's about living out of the victory that's ours already because of what Christ has done on the cross, because of the resurrection, because of Pentecost. Jesus has already given us everything we need. He has given us himself holy and completely by word and by the spirit. Jesus is the hidden manna, the true bread that is the word of God. Jesus is our sustenance, the one who satisfies and enables us to keep going. And that white stone with our new name on it is a symbol of our new identity. It's not some mystery. It's this new person that we're becoming in Christ. What's on that stone is what Paul once declared. I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live. But Christ lives in me, and the life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved and gave himself for me. Jesus has already given us everything we need and continues to provide it to remain in the truth. We just need to abide regularly in and with the truth that is Christ. Who or what is molding you, shaping you? What are you marinating in? Do you even know? Have you even stopped to reflect on that? Because, beloved, lies are parasitic. Lies gain traction because we feed them, believing them, spreading them. And in the end, they take away more from us than they can ever give. We need to stop feeding the lies. We need to stop settling for fast food, for junk food. Have truths about our identity. Have truths about our purpose, why we're here. Have truths about our destiny, where we're going. Have truths that might go down easy, but ultimately make us sick and unwell. Instead of being seduced into being less than we are, instead of being seduced into becoming less than we can be, can be, instead of being seduced into making Jesus into less than he is for us and for all the world, let us hunger. Let us hunger and be satisfied by the sustenance of Jesus' life and example. Let us hunger and be satisfied by his love and grace, his ongoing presence and power in our lives, and let's be willing to share that hunger 
and to share that satisfaction with every person around us. To propagate not lies, but the truth of love, the truth of grace, the truth of, truth of hope, the truth of peace. For in Christ alone, in Christ alone, are all the riches of wisdom and understanding. In Christ alone is truth that really satisfies. In Christ alone is the truth that will set us free. Amen. If you'd like more information about our church, please visit us online at gracehb.org.